Welcome to Samford University's Campus Worship. We hope you enjoy the presentation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. It's, uh, I've enjoyed wonderful, warm Samford hospitality uh, since I've been here. And uh, a big thank you especially to Drayton and Allison and Kelly for uh, welcoming me so well. If Protestants are often hoodwinked by politics or get played by politicians, this stems at least in part, I think, from the fact that we have lost an appreciation for the significance of virtue. We're used to the language of laws and rules and principles, but we have lost appreciation for the moral significance of virtue and the spiritual power of habit. Our moral and political categories tend to be external and voluntarist. That is, they tend to revolve around choice. So that we, um, we kind of, we have a tendency to reduce the moral life and hence political life to some rationalist process whereby someone makes rules, understands the rules, and then either chooses to obey the rules or not. But such a stunted intellectualist account of the moral life and the life in common that we call society misses all kinds of dynamics and drives and desires that move and propel us under the hood of our conscious awareness. So this morning, I want to argue that it's precisely when we appreciate the spiritual power of habit, the moral significance of our dispositions, and the political significance of virtue that will be newly attuned to the dynamics of formation and, I think, deformation in political life. But such a reframing of our moral and political life together also, I think, revalues the specificity of the gospel and the centrality of the church's worship in our political imagination. You see, Christian political witness is not merely some nostalgic appeal to creation norms or some minimalist appeal to natural law. Rather, it's nourished by the very Christological specificity of the gospel and the model of Christ the King and his relationship to his body. So the institutions of the polis, this life in common in which we find ourselves, are exposed to the transformative power of the gospel itself and can be envisioned otherwise. I would say, um, I won't spend much time on it this morning, but I would say if you want the most powerful vision of that in the 20th century, it was actually Dr. Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement, which imagined that this country could be a different country precisely if it was exposed to the gospel in powerful ways that were practiced. So, what that means then is the, the, the life in common of our political endeavors is now exposed to the transformative power of the gospel. Indeed, we could rehearse countless ways that liberal democracy itself bears the stamp of the gospel's imprint even in our post-Christian age. The um, British theologian and eth ethicist uh, Oliver O'Donovan talks about what he calls the crater marks of the gospel's impact on the West. 
and you see those in our political institutions. We sometimes forget the extent to which political institutions and practices that we take for granted in liberal democracy are the direct fruit of the gospel's impact on our life together. And part of our endeavor, I think, today is to try to remember that. Instead, what has happened, though, I find, is that Christians in political life tend to settle for what they think is natural or what's feasible or, worse yet, what's winnable. And when that happens, the missional heritage of the church's public witness is forgotten. We hope for less. Perhaps this is why Augustine's description of the happy ruler in the city of God is so jarring to our ears. I should tell you, I'm, I'm a little bit like Ricky Bobby. I'm contractually obligated to mention St. Augustine in any talk that I give. And so what, what I want to look back to, I want to look to St. Augustine as a sort of jarring model of how he thought about the possibilities of political life. And this is seen most powerfully in his magisterial later work, The City of God. I want you to hear his description of what he calls the happy ruler in the city of God. And I want you to hear this with an ear that's attuned to the scriptures. I, it's a, it, indulge me, because it's a little bit of a long quote, but we're going to project it so that I'm not just reading it at you. Okay? This is from the City of God, book five. We Christians call rulers happy if they rule with justice amid the voices of exalted praise and the reverent salutations of excessive humility. They are not inflated with pride, but remember that they are but men. If they put their power at the service of God's majesty to extend his worship far and wide, if they fear God, love him, and worship him, if more than their earthly kingdom they love that realm where they do not fear to share the kingship. It's a great phrase. That he imagined the happy ruler is one who's actually happy to share the kingship. If they are slow to punish but ready to pardon, and if they do all of this not for a burning desire for empty glory but for the love of eternal blessedness, and if they do not fail to offer their true God as a sacrifice for their sins, the oblation of humility, compassion, and prayer. It is Christian emperors of this kind whom we call happy, happy in hope during this present life to be happy in reality hereafter when what we wait for will have come to pass. Now, our imaginations have been sufficiently secularized, I think, by the assumptions of liberalism so that we are a little bit uncomfortable and maybe even embarrassed by such forthrightly Christian hopes for temporal government. What then to make of Augustine's praise for the emperor Theodosius who, he says, was more glad to be a member of the church than to be a ruler of the world. Augustine, I want us to note, celebrates not primarily his power or his accomplishments, but rather his Christ-like humility. Listen again to this other passage from the City of God. Nothing could be more wonderful than the religious humility he, that is, Emperor Theodosius, showed after the grievous crime committed by the people of Thessalonica. On the intercession of the bishops, he had promised a pardon, but then the clamor of certain of his close supporters drove him to avenge the crime. The context here is, in, in a weakness, weak moment, uh, uh, Theodosius ordered a military campaign that was really an act of revenge. It wasn't really politically justified, it was just an act of revenge. And the bishop 
confronts the emperor and says, what are you doing? But he was constrained by the discipline of the church to do penance in such a fashion that the people of Thessalonica, as they prayed for him, wept at seeing the imperial highness thus prostrate with an emotion stronger than their fears of the emperor's wrath at their offense. What I want us to carry with us here is an image of the emperor of the Roman Empire prostrate on the ground in confession and humility. And I want you to transpose that to 2017 for just a second. (laughs) Much that traffics under the banner of Christian political theology and public engagement has little to do, I am afraid, with the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Instead, what we get from allegedly Christian public theologies are appeals to natural law or norms that are restricted to general revelation and the dictates of reason. But where does reason dictate penance? And where does the natural law commend forgiveness and mercy? Did creation order ever drive us to our knees in a passionate prayer of confession? And are not such practices and virtues very germane to the image-bearing task of governing? So this scene from the city of God suggests I think a more integral link between the church and the state, don't freak out, a more integral link between the church and the state without simply conflating or identifying them. It suggests that the practices of the church as a polis, as its own outpost of the city of God, are germane to the political goods of even the earthly city. That the liturgy of the body of Christ shapes those worshipers who are then sent to take up their vocation amid earthly rule precisely because they emerge from the practices of the Christian worship with new habits, with new virtues, with new dispositions that bear the imprint of the cross. This suggests, I think, a Christian political theology that's rooted in the substance of the gospel and the specific practices of the cruciform community that is the church. We don't have to undertake, then, any intellectual acrobatics to link the church to politics. And I get, every time I say that, I understand why some people are getting nervous, and I'm going to keep qualifying it so this is not some sort of Constantinian Christendom agenda, all right? I want you to hear it as actually something very different. We don't need to extrapolate applications to connect worship to citizenship. Why? Because Christian worship is already an inherently political act. The proclamation of the word is the rehearsal of a liberation narrative for a royal priesthood. It is the announcement of an evangelion, as Paul puts it, that rivals Caesar's. The table of the Lord is a revolutionary meal in which the are-nots are invited to sit at the king's table. There are no box seats at communion. There are no VIPs. There's no rank. The weekly gathering of the saints is a rite that rehearses heavenly citizenship. And the church's worship is not just some alternative polis of a secluded enclave. It is always already an intervention in the world. 
The doxological claim that Jesus is Lord is a political act that refuses to say Caesar is Lord. Tom, Tom Wright has done a great job of showing that when, when the early Christians proclaimed Jesus Curios, Jesus is Lord, they were very intentionally riving the imperial cult that said Caesar is Lord. Just by showing up at church, you were making a political statement. In the mundane reality of Christians gathering to worship, Bernd von Invench has said, men and women repeatedly disengage from the comings and goings of the world with its inextricably tangled web of the moral and the immoral so as to enter into God's rests. And this witnesses to the fact that the world may revolve on its axis, but its life does not depend on its own frenetic activity. The external testimony of worship, he continues, is intrinsic to its very existence as an interruption of the course of the world. Every time you go to church on Sunday morning, you are reminding the world that it's not its own end. So we undergo what Paul calls in Romans 12 that spiritual work of worship in order to be transformed rather than being conformed to the world. And yet even this is for the sake of the world. Formed for the hard work of discernment and judgment, we see through what the world calls good in order to discern what is truly good, true, and beautiful. Indeed, the church's worship has political spillover effects for those who might never darken the door of a sanctuary even. Not only does worship shape heavenly citizens who are sent to love their neighbors, there's also an important sense in which Christ's redemptive work in the body of Christ renews society in more systemic ways as well. The spirited, sanctified, sacramental renewal of practical judgment includes what Joan Lockwood O'Donovan calls the renewal of moral agency. And that has a spillover effect for society as a whole. This renewal of moral agency is not moral training for a rapture launch. It's the formation of a people who, in what Augustine calls the seculum, this long era in which we find ourselves, share terrain and share political responsibility with their neighbors. So the church's worship doesn't become political when it's translated into policy or hooked to some partisan agenda. The politics of worship is tied to the renewal of the moral agency of the people of God who, and this is important, are formed to be sent. It's important to see that the logic of Christian worship is that the people of God are gathered and called centripetally around word and table to be shaped by God's story, but the very end of it is always to be centrifically sent out to bear God's witness to the world for the sake of our neighbors. In this sense, the very fact of Christian worship is a twofold political act involving the formation of political agents and a proclamation to legislatures, lawmakers, rulers, that the created order is subject to a higher law. So worship is not just a rehearsal of natural law or what we can know by reason. It's the restoring, the restoring and the restoring of a renewed humanity who are being liturgically schooled. 
The index and criterion for justice and the right ordering of society is not some generic, universal, natural canon, but the revealed biblical story unfolded in God's covenant relationship with his people. The drama is rehearsed in worship in such a way that the story seeps into our bones on this register now of habit and disposition. It's not just that you learn to think about the world in a certain way. It's when you are being conscripted into God's story, you are sent out into the world as his image bearers, and now you imagine the world in ways that you never even think about it. But you imagine it in ways that are normed by what God loves and what God desires for the world. That's what we mean by disposition, by habit. Let, let me try just one example. I'm a philosopher, so I don't do a lot of examples. But let me try one example. At the heart of the imagination-forming practices of Christian worship is the story of God and Christ reconciling the world to himself. So the narrative spine, if you will, of worship is Scripture. But this isn't just the preached word. It's not just a sermon-centric claim that prioritizes the didactic. Rather, in historic Christian worship, Scripture is woven through the entirety of worship, from the call to worship, through confession, in the promise of the gospel, in the assurance of our pardon, in the psalms that are sung, in readings from the Old Testament, New Testament, and gospels, in the rehearsal of the passion in the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, even in the benediction. It's all Bible all the time in this historic form of worship. So unlike some very sermon-centric congregations that profess a high view of Scripture but leave the reading of the Bible to the preacher's whim in one little moment in the service, in Catholic Christian worship, that's a small c on Catholic there if anybody's freaking out, but in Catholic Christian worship, the Bible isn't just the focus of preaching, it's actually the lexicon of the entire service of worship. Now why would that matter politically? Well, one of the key disciplines, historic disciplines of the body of Christ, is to have the words in worship be uh, um, sort of prescribed or, or, or uh, directed by what is often called a lectionary. How many of you ever heard of a lectionary? Okay, so, oh, great. So let me say, a lectionary, again, don't get too worried about this. A lectionary is really just, think of it as a sort of a curriculum for the body of Christ to be taken through the entire council of scripture every three years, okay? So the lectionary is a sort of pattern and program for scriptural readings every Sunday on a three-year cycle so that if you just show up to church for three years, you will have read the Bible, okay? What's also kind of cool is the lectionary is common, so Christians from all different kinds of streams and traditions and denominations are meditating on the same words of the Bible that week. Now, why would the lectionary be significant for our political formation? Well, worshiping congregations that follow the lectionary are taken through the whole of Scripture. They hear the whole counsel of God, including those parts that challenge our own preferences and haunt our learned political leanings. You are going to hear God saying things in the Bible that you are uncomfortable with, <laughs> that sort of push back on your own preferences and tastes. For example, any congregation whose worship is governed by the lectionary 
will be confronted by widows and orphans and immigrants every single year. What would that do to your political imagination as a Christian? Insofar as hearing the whole counsel of God is a political discipline, what I'm suggesting is something as simple as the lectionary is a right of the kingdom of God because it not only informs our intellect, but it incubates our imagination and the story that we carry in our bones. In short, worship shapes the kind of citizen you are sent to be, and it does so because it is habit-forming. It's working on you on registers that you won't even realize. Oh, man, I have so much to tell you. Okay. Now, ultimately and primarily, this is how we learn to be citizens of the city of God. But we shouldn't underestimate how significant this formation is for our penultimate temporal citizenship in the nations in which we find ourselves. Indeed, I would argue that even in its opposition to the city of God, the earthly city as we know it, and let's just say for our purposes we mean something like the forms of secular liberal democracy that we all swim in, even that depends on the habit-shaping, virtue-forming power of religious communities like the church. In other words, one of the things that I want to flip the tables here a little bit and say that actually pluralism needs the church. I'm not going to rehearse an argument for the goods of pluralism this morning. There is, in, in my own Reformed tradition, particularly in the work of Abraham Kuyper, there's a rich legacy of articulating precisely why and how Christians could affirm the goods of pluralism before kingdom come. I, I'm not going to do that this morning. I, I would love to come back. But what I'm interested in is, apart from coming up with... Um, just the sort of rules and laws and principles that should govern pluralism, I would say that in my own tradition and in Christian thinking about pluralism in general, we have tended to underestimate the importance and need, not only of the right ideas and rules, but of the dispositions and habits, yea, virtues of citizens, in order to live well together in a pluralistic context. A healthy pluralistic society requires attention to the formation of agents and actors who inhabit both the specific sphere of the state and all kinds of other social structures that comprise civil society. Any account of good citizenship in a pluralistic society needs to be rooted in a sufficiently holistic anthropology that, that is a view of the human persons that is attentive not only to the systems of a just yet diverse society, but also the formation of the citizens with requisite habits and virtues who know how to tolerate one another, right? So it's not enough to say, what should we, what's important, what should we value, what are the principles that we should live by? It's a question of how do we become the kind of people who are disposed to live by those. Now, um, this is where... Legal scholar John Inazu's argument in a brand new book called Confident Pluralism makes an important contribution to our current discussion. Inazu, in Confident Pluralism, emphasizes the first half, he's a legal constitutional scholar, and so he emphasizes okay, here's the state of the conversation in terms of pluralism, tolerance, uh, um, difference, and so on. But the second half of the book is focused on what are the dispositions that we need in a citizenry 
to actually live together with people who we disagree with on very, very fundamental levels. And he talks about particularly the dispositions of tolerance, humility, and patience. Insofar as virtues are good habits, and habits are internal dispositions uh, uh, um, inscribed in us by imitation and practice, then you can see how these virtues of good citizenship, tolerance, humility, and patience, he's saying that these are crucial for the very project of liberal democracy, those virtues can only be acquired by formation through immersion in social practices. And Onazu is attentive and worried that while a liberal democratic and secular society prizes toleration, it has not yet come up with an account of where people are going to be formed to learn how to have the disposition of being tolerant. And it might be precisely why we are seeing a rising in, in, uh, uh, intolerance in our society. For some reason, I was thinking it was a different word there. On, from both left and right, by the way. So this raises real challenges for the prospects of such virtue formation in a post-religious, secularized society. In fact, what's interesting is liberalism itself needs to face some difficult questions. Where does a generic, secular liberalism provide such communities of practice, a space for citizens to acquire the dispositions of tolerance, humility, and patience. Where, in a stratified and segmented society, do citizens have the opportunity to practice encounter with and tolerance of difference? This is where our enclaves and echo chambers actually shrivel our, our tolerance muscles, right? We, we lose the practice of learning to live together with those with whom we disagree. What story would orient them and motivate them to be patient? Who's going to teach them to be humble and give them a reason why? Does a liberal pluralist society have what it needs to be what it wants to be? This is, the, I think, the interesting situation is liberal society, liberal, democratic, secularized society maybe can't have what it wants. So let me close with one last theme. I think this is a very interesting challenge that our society has to face. Does a secularized, post-Christian, increasingly anti-religious society have the resources, the capacity to engender the virtues needed for a tolerant pluralism? In his remarkable book, The Fractured Republic, Yuval Levin makes this point with a Tocquevillian accent. In many ways, he says, the ideal of a pluralistic liberal society has lived off the borrowed capital of illiberal and mostly religious communities, including the family, as incubators for the dispositions of good citizenship. But in, so, do you know what I mean? In other words, the goods of democratic liberalism, which hold up a public ideal, have actually always sort of stood on the shoulders of what we would call illiberal communities, by which we simply mean, at my house, the, it, my house is not a democracy. Now, 
my wife is emperor. Uh, but what I mean is the kids aren't getting a vote. Do you know what I mean? This is, it's illiberal just in the sense that we're not deciding family vacations based on a democracy. We're not deciding family giving on the basis of a democracy. A church is an illiberal institution. Now, it's in a very technical sense. You hope that it's a very gracious, hospitable, loving institution, without question. But what we mean is it's not simply what people prefer. It's answerable to authorities beyond it. And so what's interesting is you get this paradox where liberal democratic political society has actually depended on the virtue-forming powers of illiberal communities in other parts of civil society. What if, in fact, religious communities are, the best, are best able to articulate why we ought to be tolerant, right? In other words, what if it is the case that, in fact, religious communities are the best incubators for liberal democratic citizens? Then I think our current state of the conversation is caught in a paradox. That, that should lead us to, okay, I'm totally condensing now. That should lead us to then reconsider why we do what we do when we worship. We might consider, what, what I think we should do is look anew at how the practices of Christian worship inscribe in us dispositions, inclinations, habits, virtues that actually make us good citizens in the common good and in the public sphere. We could align Inazu's aspirational virtues, tolerance, humility, patience, with the rhythms and rituals of historic Christian worship and consider how these emerge from the imaginary carried in liturgical practices. For, for example, we might consider how the Christian practice of confession engenders a humility that should characterize our public posture when we are sent from the sanctuary. We might consider how the implicit eschatology of the Eucharist, of the Lord's Supper, should engender over time a deep patience and hope that should temper any activist penchant to take over. Or we might consider how the prayers of the people, for even our enemies, come into the purview of our concern by being brought before God in prayer. Or we might consider how the lectionary, again, is this sort of epistemic discipline that confronts us with the whole counsel of God, and it won't let us ignore widows, orphans, and immigrants. Now, I readily admit that such an exercise must have a self-critical moment. That is, we have to ask this question, does Christian worship do this? And if not, why not? That's the prophetic task that the church needs to direct at itself. Is it partly because Christian worship has been co-opted by other stories, other liturgies, other dynamics? This is where I think we see the importance of what is a growing conversation today between ecclesiology and ethnography, where we bring the practices of ethnography to actually subject the church to analysis. And in some ways, I think one of the best examples of that is the work of now Yale theologian Willie James Jennings in his book on race, The Christian Imagination. If you want to try to figure out where the church went wrong on race, you have to read its practices and how our liturgies became disordered. The New Jerusalem is not a product of our bottom-up efforts, as if we were going to make it. The New Jerusalem descends from heaven, and the light of the holy city is not just some natural accomplishment, it is the light radiating from the glory 
of the risen, conquering Lamb. The holistic affirmation of the goodness of creation and the continued importance of this worldly justice is not a substitute for heaven, as if the holistic gospel were a sanctified way to become a naturalist. To the contrary, it's the very transcendence of God in the ascension of the Son who now reigns from heaven and in the futurity of that coming kingdom for which we pray, that the it, that's what disciplines and disrupts and haunts our tendency, tendency to settle for this world. It's the call of the Son from heaven and the vision of the new Jerusalem descending from heaven that pushes back on our illusions that we could figure this all out, that we could bring it about. Shalom is not biblical language for progressivist social amelioration. Shalom is the biblical language for a Christ-haunted call to long for kingdom come. I think, and I want you to consider, how Christian worship is a unique gift in this respect. It's a strange sort of reminder since it reminds us not only of a past but a future. Worship, Von Invench said, again and again interrupts the course of the world. This is why the celebration of, you, of, the wor of worship is not simply directed against this or that totalitarian regime. It is directed against the total totalization of political existence itself. In this sense, I want to suggest that we... Christians hear a political admonition week after week. It's one that we might not know is political, but it indeed is when God invites us and says, lift up your hearts. Thanks very much. For more information about Samford University, check out samford.edu.